Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Boodoo and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hello and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode is with Pranav Rajprakar, an assistant professor at Harvard University in the Department of Biomedical Informatics, where he focuses on advancing medical artificial intelligence. He is joined by Vijay Pandey of Bio and Health. Pranav and Vijay talk about generalist medical AI, or the idea of a medical AI that isn't narrowly tailored to one specific task. As Pranav noted, the research and development process so far has been siloed by specialty. But the way we've thought about working in a lot of medical applications is you specialize in a modality. The people who work on retinal image interpretation are a different community from the people who work on chest x-ray interpretation. And part of that has been that we have fragmentation into medical specialties because it takes time to get that domain knowledge. And I think when you think of unification of this sort, it's really got to be with someone who has enough of knowledge of both of these modalities or many of these modalities to come and say, I see unifying principles here. I see an abstraction that makes sense to cast both of these sub-problems into this larger problem, which we can tackle at once. But in the future, if generalist medical AI is successful, it could act as a dynamic support system to a physician, almost like a medical resident. So let's take bedside decision support. If today you have an alarm, in um, the context of an ICU or an emergency department is very hard to get an explanation for that alarm. But imagine one in which this alarm goes off and the physician's able to ask, hey, why is this alarm going off? And then the model can say that the patient has a fast heart rate. And then the model can also recommend what the physician should do next. So in this case, I liken it to having a second pair of eyes I like to even have this idea of an AI resident mm. in the way no, the academic medical centers work is you typically have a program in which a resident is responsible for an initial output. So it's so a doctor in training. Yeah, a doctor in training and the attending who is their supervisor is responsible for giving them feedback and correcting. And why can't we imagine a world in which this um, model is taking on that role of a resident now able to not only do this wide variety of things, but also get some feedback yeah. from the people who are more experienced. You're listening to BioEats World from A16Z. Pranav, thank you so much for being on BioEats World. Uh, thanks for having me. 
You've written this very exciting work on generalist medical AI. I want to get there because I think that's a really critical direction for AI and healthcare, and especially get your take on how that varies from what existing LLMs do. Uh, but before I get there, I think it'd be useful for people to get to know you a bit. What got you excited about the space? Uh, you know, what was your path to getting here? My uh, dad, who loves computer science, wanted me to learn computer science in middle school, and I somehow avoided doing that until high school. And, and why? Because it's funny. Because I had a similar experience. Uh, what made you want not want to do computer science? I think I was more interested in physics and math at the time, yeah. and I didn't find an interest in computer science until I actually did it. And this was in um, 2011 when I came to Stanford for high school summer college, and I spent a summer learning uh, CS106A, which is the intro to programming class, very famous. Um, and I just fell in love with computer science. And then fast forward to the start of my undergrad, it was right before the first day of classes, and there was a professor giving a um, talk on artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And that was Andrew Ng, and I went, and I got excited about the things he showed about the helicopters that can be upside down, and I thought this would be awesome to try to do. So I actually sent him an email saying, hey, I actually know a little bit of JavaScript. I'm very interested in doing AI research in the future. And to my surprise, he responded saying, why don't you apply to my lab? So I did, and they uh, they liked me for my uh, JavaScript skills at the time. Decided to pick up machine learning through my undergrad, and then and you were an undergrad at Stanford at that time. I was yeah. an undergrad at Stanford at the time, and decided sometime in the middle of my undergrad that I would do a PhD. And I knew I was excited about things that were at the intersection of AI and um, human computer interaction. My undergrad work was on autonomous driving and building perception systems for that. When I started my PhD, I was searching for an application where I would feel excited about the application and development of AI, and I found that for the intersection of AI and medicine. There's so many different ways you could go, and especially autonomous cars were particularly hot at that time. Was there anything particular about medicine? Well, so I was exploring many different applications. I was looking at security, I was looking at networks, databases, and then I did a rotation with Andrew, this time as part of my PhD. One of the senior PhD students at the time uh, had started working on a project which he described to me as, we have data from a lot of the patients wearing heart monitors, and we'd like to be able to interpret that data to find out who has an abnormal heart rhythm. And I remember my very first week on the project, I went to the uh, medical school library and picked up a book on ECG interpretation, and it felt very, very alive, the project. I used to learn something, and then I used to think, how do I translate this into a machine learning problem? And I remember day after day, I used to be working on developing these models that we were seeing were getting better and better, and we had this milestone of what expert performance was, and I wanted to try to get the model to that level, uh, which we actually did in a, in a few months, and we thought that was super exciting and, and wrote about it, and that became my first paper in uh, medical AI. So we wrote this paper in early seven, uh, 2017, actually, yeah, okay. 
And in early 2017, with ECG interpretation, there's actually a history that goes back to the 80s. People have been trying to use machine learning to automate these reads, and they're not very good, uh, but there have been lots of attempts. And the unifying approaches for that was we have a signal, and we're going to process that signal in a certain way to extract a particular feature and then use machine learning models on those extracted features to be able to identify one type of rhythm. Right, so human extracted features. Human extracted features, which were really modeled after uh, how we wanted to process that signal, what kind of um, part of that signal we wanted to extract. But the thing was, if you wanted to go for a different abnormal heart rhythm, you would want to do that feature extraction in a different way. So at this time, there was a real shift towards trying to remove that feature extraction step and work directly with raw signals and build deep learning modules that were able to process the raw signals directly. And so we applied convolutional neural networks to this 1D sequence data Mm -hmm. to be able to uh, process it well. And there were advances at the time, like for example, how do you optimize a deep network and the introduction of shortcut connections. How do you order the layers in the architecture such that that optimization happens really well? And it was exciting to read those advances, go ahead and implement them, and test them out and see how they do. And we were actually the first to show that if you had a deep learning approach and you compared to cardiologists, that we were at least at the same level of performance across many different Uh, categories. And that was very exciting at the time. And it's a result in 2023, I think, you know, seems obvious and seems for granted, but certainly did not feel that way at the time. Yeah. What was your take on deep models at the time? There was this transition from more traditional ML words, human features and random forest or other types of methods. And the deep methods looked very exciting, but obviously a lot of parameters and almost like uh, at that time, what felt like a lot of just uh, magical inc- incantations to get it to work. Yeah, the idea was there's a lot of excitement, but there is likely a lot of reasons why it's not going to work for whatever kind of data that you have. And for medical data, it basically came down to two questions. Do I have enough labels in my data set to be able to tackle this? And then uh, do I have the data in a modality where we know how to apply deep learning models? And traditionally, that had been uh, images or audio where a lot of advances had been made. I remember circa 2015, 2016, there hadn't been a big breakthrough in text. Mm -hmm. And so we were really waiting for those kind of advances to happen. And I would say for the label data problem, we really struggled with that and still in some way struggle with that. But there's been a lot of uh, breakthroughs in our understanding of how to model unlabeled data, for instance, to be able to uh, learn more efficiently from a data standpoint. Yeah, could you double click on that? Because in a lot of data sets, uh, there just aren't labels. Yeah. There may be all this wearable information or other types of uh, information where uh, no doctors looked at it, but but you may have a lot of it. Yeah. A large part of my um, late PhD work and early faculty work was on self-supervised learning in medicine. And you see this a lot in medical applications where you might be able to collect data at scale that is unlabeled. But if you want to do labeling, 
that's going to be very resource intensive, either from a like, cost perspective. Like trying to get a whole bunch of doctors to actually label things. Yeah. The traditional approach, you throw away all of the unlabeled data and you just work with your labeled data. But that seems like a waste. There's probably an opportunity to learn from that unlabeled data. And the breakthrough in self-supervised learning was basically, let's take that unlabeled data and let's cast it as a supervised learning problem by basically deriving the relationship that you want to model from that unlabeled data. As an example, what you can do is, if you want to learn the structure of a signal, you can mask out a part of that signal and you can use the rest of the signal to predict out what was masked. Not unlike in a sentence, you could take out a word and see if it could predict that word. That's right. So in text, there was a big move towards self-supervised learning from a mass language modeling perspective, uh, which first was mask out a word within a sentence. I guess the more common approach now, which is use the previous words to predict the next word in the sentence. And people found that work really well for audio. And then there was another class of techniques which work really well for images. And the self-supervised learning approach for images was really, let's try to figure out two ways to augment the image. For example, you might rotate an image or you might flip it. And let's ask the network to learn to represent these two images in similar parts of representation space when it embeds them. And the idea is you're telling the network that by rotating or by flipping this image, it's not changing the content of the image. So in some way, you're putting the invariances into in, in a this sense, network. you're synthetically creating many new images that you can know that have the same label. Exactly. Whatever that label might be. Yeah. So we've taken all this unlabeled data set and we've been able to structure this effective, what's called a pretext task. So then this model is able to learn a representation that it can then apply to downstream tasks which have labeled data. And we find that by adding this pre-training step, you can improve the label efficiency, which is how much bang for your buck you get for every label on several medical tasks for several different medical data types. We published about this in um, one of our recent reviews, uh, basically showing that in the field of medical AI, there's been this transition into using self-supervised learning across different kinds of modalities, and it's worked out really, really well. I think generally there's been this idea of let's make things as unified as possible to show that you can have one model, one type of training procedure, one kind of an architecture that can do all of these different tasks all at once and people used to ask me, Pranav, do you think we're going to get uh, models that can interpret chest x-rays and retinal images at the same time? And I used to think, there's really no reason why that can't be the future. Mm -hmm. But the way we've thought about working in a lot of medical applications is you specialize in a modality. The people who work on retinal image interpretation are a different community from the people who work on chest x-ray interpretation. And part of that has been that we have fragmentation into medical specialties because it takes time to get that domain knowledge. And I think when you think of unification of this sort, it's really got to be with someone who has enough 
of knowledge of both of these modalities or many of these modalities to come and say, I see unifying principles here. I see an abstraction that makes sense to cast both of these sub-problems into this larger problem, which we can tackle at once. Yeah, the other aspect of unification that I find interesting is that in a sense, what you're doing is building a med student rather than building uh, someone that goes into an individual specialty and that med student learns. Yeah. And that uh, what makes a good med student might be fairly generic. What's kind of the mind-blowing thing to me is that it's also the same thing that makes the theoretical physicist and the programmer, mm -hmm. as we see with these large models. Mm -hmm. Do you think that continues? Do you think we will have one architecture, one large model, like for everything? Or, you know, is healthcare separate? Like, does it stay as one genius model or do the specialties emerge? Yeah. And I think this is a very interesting conversation to have in 2023. Yeah. I think one bet for us to make right now is, are we going to have one lawyer plus doctor in the future? Are we going to have one model that's specialized to be a doctor and one model that's specialized to be a lawyer? And so I'd like to make a bet. I'd like to make a bet that you will have one model that can be a doctor and a lawyer, but you will have a better model that's uh, just a lawyer in the short term. In the long term, I think you're going to find that there is shared learning between teaching a model to be a doctor and teaching a model to be a lawyer. And so when I look at current systems, there are a few different factors at play that make me think of this bet. One is, how are we training these models? So let's talk about where the training data comes from. The companies that have access to training data from large healthcare systems are likely not the ones who have training data that have access to large law repositories. Right. And so we're going to have different entities that are going to build these models. You could say, okay, fine. So maybe that's the argument for... Well, especially this is not just a technical question. There's some logistics here because even if you could build that model, if you don't have the data, uh, you won't be able to do it. That's right. The one key point I think that you're getting at is that um, maybe nobody will have all the data to yeah. teach it. And so is that why it gets siloed? Also, like if you want to teach it everything, you're going to need a really freaking big model. And that gets really expensive, like yeah. billions of dollars expensive yeah. to train. And maybe that's also not the first thing you do. That's right. Yeah. I think we're coming on the same side of the bet, though, which is not very exciting. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, because I would also agree that like I, probably you see specialists first where it's more narrowly trained. And especially um, different companies will have different uh, uh, data sets. Like I could imagine a healthcare company that has EMR data, maybe some life science data, and also knows what to do with it. Yeah. knows how to clean it, how to trust it, how to process it. And that company probably is not the company to go after legal data yeah. and understand how to handle that. Maybe let's see, can we make the counter argument? You know, does Google or OpenAI, do they, you know, with enough funding, they could just pick five key areas. There's only so many specialists, specialties. Why don't they just do that? And I think that's a, that's a good argument to, to lean into and maybe think what are the other ingredients in this recipe? So we have the data. That's for sure. But we also have one other element, which is the change in those models with human feedback. So if you are an entity that's going to put out a model that can make medical claims, uh, you better be able to back those up with some kind of regula regulatory approval that allows you to, to do that. And I think what we're going to find is 
people are going to shy away from doing that unless they are specifically embedded in the domain and want to pick up the risks in that domain. And I think healthcare is a great example of that. So are we going to have entities that are tuning these models to basically say no to medical questions, to say, I'm not a licensed healthcare professional, please find the closest licensed healthcare professional, or is someone going to pick up the liability and say, I'm going to have this answer be as would be given to you by someone who is a, a confident doctor who's not going to try to make any reservations about the claims of what you should do. And I think there is a complex socio-technical challenges here uh, that also play into effect. Yeah. Well, so, so tell me a bit more about the work that you've done on um, uh, generalist medical AI. Um, how does that fit into the picture we've been talking about? The idea of a generalist medical AI is uh, can we do the full scope of what doctors can do and more? Mm -hmm. so that's the dream. If you look at the current state of medical AI right now, there has been incredible amount of progress. We have about 500 FDA-approved AI ML devices for medicine. Um, a couple of weeks ago, some of my colleagues and I uh, did a review of all of the trials in AI and medicine, and we counted 84 trials in AI and medicine. All of them, all of these solutions that we're seeing are what I think of as narrow point solutions. They do something very specific. They might be able to triage a mammogram, or they might be able to count the number of lung nodules in a chest CT. But that represents a very, very small fraction of the tasks that doctors do. And fine, they might represent you know 50% of an image interpretation for you know the prevalence of a general population, but that's not able to get us to the point at which we can say this is doing everything mm -hmm. that we would want such a system to do what we would expect out of a doctor. A few colleagues and I got together last year and we started to think about, well, do we think we have a blueprint for how we might be able to get to this full capability of doctors and more. And as we brainstormed through this, we realized we actually have a lot of the key technological and perhaps even the data pieces in play to imagine how we build such a system and what kind of applications that might unlock. So GMAI can enable a whole host of applications and really shift our thinking in terms of these models as solving specific problems to solving the full scope of the problems. So I wanna highlight maybe three things that we can expect to change. So let's take bedside decision support. If today you have an alarm in um, the context of an ICU or an emergency department, it's very hard to get an explanation for that alarm. But imagine one in which this alarm goes off and the physician's able to ask, hey, why is this alarm going off? And then the model can say that the patient has a fast heart rate. And then the model can also recommend what the physician should do next. So in this case, I liken it to having a second pair of eyes. I like to even have this idea of an AI resident mm. in the no, way the academic medical centers work is you typically have a 
program in which a resident is responsible for an initial output. So it's a doctor in training. Yeah, a doctor in training. And the attending, who is their supervisor, is responsible for giving them feedback and correcting. And why can't we imagine a world in which this um, model is taking on that role of the resident, now able to not only do this wide variety of things, but also get some feedback from the people who are more experienced. I could imagine for these agents in healthcare, they'd have to interact with human doctors too, and presumably be queried by doctors and maybe an attending computer resident uh, type of relationship or uh, as peers. Does that get built in automatically or is that something that has to be designed as well? I think it's in fact how we're going to start out is we're already seeing the way we're integrating LLMs into a lot of settings is they become query agents. And I think GMAI is going to make its way into medicine as initially query agents that are used at scale by patients because GMAI has a lot of time. (laughs) We're not wasting anyone's time by asking them questions about our health and what we can do to fix it. So for patients and families of patients, I think that's a game changer. And perhaps you can argue with healthcare professionals, they want to minimize that communication to increase their productivity. And maybe their productivity goes towards tasks that are truly not well-fitting into this input-output formulation mm-hmm. and requires some kind of physical intervention or requires some kind of empathy that can only be delivered face-to-face and from human to human. Yeah. So, and then just take it one step further, how does this even work like in a practical sense? Because is the AI resident like a disembodied voice in the room? I was almost imagining like a doctor wearing an iPad as a necklace <laughs> and there's like a computer avatar on there talking as well. Is it like a, a beam robot, you know, that follows a doctor around? What do you think it needs to have to exist in the physical world to be able to practice medicine? So I'll maybe share a couple of different formulations. So let's start with radiology. So in radiology, one thing that's very clear is the limits of the input and output are well-defined. What this typically means is the uh, radiologist receives a scan and they receive typically an indication, which is what is the referring physician looking for in the scan? Why was the scan done? And then they answer that question along with interpreting everything else in the image that might be a cause for yeah, concern. So what a AI resident here looks like is basically if you imagine what the radiologist is starting out with, consider them not starting out with a blank report. It's typically not blank. It's usually some template that's uh, not very smartly filled. But imagine that being filled out already when they start. Kind of what one would call a co-pilot in other sort of uh, areas of AI. Yeah, exactly. A a medical co-pilot, or I like to to call it an AI resident, Mm -hmm. because that's truly what the AI resident does in the radiology setting, which is draft up the report for the attending to review. So that part is very clear, and I think anything that's not patient-facing, I think I could see that working. But what about the areas that are patient-facing? So for the areas that are patient-facing, maybe let's take it back to images. So if you have an image that's interpreted, usually it's in very technical language, and a typical patient workflow with that looks like they are translating that report into words they understand, Googling, I guess in the era of ChatGPT now, they're going to put it in there and they're going to find out, okay, here's what this actually means. 
but that could be inbuilt into mm -hmm. these workflows. We could have these customized interactive reports where you can not only ask questions about the report, but you can refer back to the image mm. and ask more questions where the answer might be, here, look, this is the outline of your liver, mm -hmm. and here's what is going on. And I think that could be a very powerful um, interaction to enable. So this, in this case, I guess the, the AI isn't really taking a, a, a form of a body, but it's uh, taking the form of a uh, chatbot yeah. in this particular case. When we started talking about the topic, you mentioned that short-term, these specialist models uh, could win, but long-term, it'd be a few big models. Yeah. So when, does, when do we hit the long-term? So I'll take a technical lens on this first. I think what is required to make these sort of single models work is some way for me to say, I'm an entity with some data that I can give to a trusted entity to update their models to be able to then be used by either just my party or by mm -hmm. multiple other parties, the solution. And I think continual learning, which is once you have a model, can you take in new data and update the model, is very hard. And it seems to be a very hard problem, especially with these very large models, which have very sufficiently different training dynamics than these small and models. It, even if it were technically possible, it'd still be pretty expensive. It would be expensive, and I think making that cheap is going to be a big question. When I was in grad school, um, a professor was once um, talking about how unique AI was at, a at the time where you could have a group of grad students build something that would outperform something a company built. But he made the point that if you want to make a build a plane, a commercial plane, a group of grad students could never match Boeing. Right. And so it might be a reflection of the maturity of the field where it is truly impossible for small teams with small numbers of resources to actually match that level of performance. And that might be fine in the way it always goes in the future. At the same time, there is a big open source movement to try to match the performance of these very expensive large models by sophisticated approaches to actually have those capabilities within much smaller, much easier to train models. And it remains to be seen whether that's going to uh, be a curve that continues to grow or one that we'll start to see plateau. Yeah. So do you want to venture a guess for when do we get to the regime where uh, we have one model that can be my doctor and my lawyer and everything in between. It wouldn't shock me if uh, by the mid-2030s, problem is this, it could come sooner if someone can solve the data quickly. Yeah. If one entity, and you know, there's certain entities that are very good with data, like Google, if they had enough data, they probably could build this in a very technical way uh, sooner rather than later. I mean, that could be even like uh, months to years rather than decades. Yeah. Maybe to put a number out there, let's say 10 years. 10 years, yeah. For five years, that's probably still within scope and it's 15. It, it also gives a fair bit of room for optimists or pessimists. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z Podcast Network. 
If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com slash disclosures.